So today we continue the crimson thread leading up towards Easter. And there's this Spanish story of a father and a son who became estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to look for him. He searched high and low for months and months and months to no avail. Finally, in last ditch, desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, as noon rolled around, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and the love of their father. And each one of us is just like Paco. That we're looking and seeking for the love that only our Father in heaven can answer. The world is full of broken relationships. You don't have to go far to find people in conflict. And with broken relationships, there's such a desire in each one of us to have something done to repair and restore these relationships. When you bring this over to Scripture, you begin to see these parallel concepts. On one side, we talk about being reconciled and restored with God. And on the flip side, we have to recognize that something is wrong, something is broken that needs to be made right. Now, to comprehend how great the restoration is, you have to see what a bloody mess the other side was. And so, as we've begun this journey through the crimson thread of Scripture, we began last week talking about creation. That out of nothing, God spoke the worlds into existence. And that the pinnacle of his creation is you and I. That he created each person in the image of God. That you bear the likeness of your father God. But then humanity chose to rebel. To turn against God. And death, destruction entered the world. Romans 5.12 puts it in a brutal way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Every single one of us falls into that category of all sinned. And all of us have experienced death in our lives. Humanity, originally created for unbroken relationship with God, is now in a broken relationship with both God and one another. We call this moment in history the fall where humanity chose to rebel against God. And the consequences of the fall is that the snake, Satan, was cursed. The ground was cursed. Pain came in childbirth. And then Adam and Eve were told that they had to exit the garden. Right before the exit of the garden, God killed an animal and covered their nakedness. So God is the first one to slaughter an animal. And so now today we're going to take a whirlwind trip through the Old Testament and this whole bloody mess of the the Old Testament. So put on your seatbelts and get ready to cover like 30, 40 books of the Bible in the next 20 minutes. So the next death occurs not long after that first one, and it's when Cain kills Abel. The first two siblings can't get along, and there's a whole complicated relationship, and Cain kills Abel. As Adam and Eve have more children and humanity begins to grow, they don't grow closer to God. They have, actually have a gravitational pull away from God. 
The promised utopia of humanity turns into a wasteland of sin, rebellion, and death. And by the time Noah is born, the world is a mess, completely twisted against God. Now, for some of us, we might believe that people are inherently good, and that if we're so good that we are put, if we're putting in the right environment, we will get better and better and better. This verse in Genesis 6-5 challenges that concept. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The world, utterly, totally depraved, turned against God. And God decides that humanity needs a hard reset. And so he chooses the one family that still continues to follow him, Noah and his children. He speaks to Noah and tells him to build a boat for his family and all the animals. And the flood comes and wipes out all the other people and animals except Noah and his family. This is not something that goes on a nursery wall, which it often does. But this is the cleansing of evil from the face of the earth. Once the flood comes to an end and the water begins to recede, Moses steps off of the ark and one of the first things he does is he builds an altar and sacrifices to God. Intuitive in his nature, because it had never been commanded, was this idea that I need to do something to appease and restore a relationship with God. As we move into the period of the patriarchs, We see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And easily we can put these people who have been set apart by God for a purpose on a pedestal. But we see even the best of humanity falls far short of God's standard. Noah, this is another one we don't tell in uh, story time for the kids, as Noah gets off of the ark, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and gets naked. How's that one for you? They're probably not telling that one downstairs right now. Then after that, you have Abraham and Isaac, and both of them lie about their wives being their sisters instead because they're afraid for their lives and how beautiful these women are, and so they lie outright. Jacob steals the birthright from his brother and then steals the firstborn blessing from his brother. Jacob was the one who was renamed Israel and where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. Even the best are still broken and sinful, and God needs to rescue us. And he's weaving this crimson thread through history. And when you begin to look at the story of the patriarchs and other people, you see that when they encounter God, a natural response or something that God speaks to them is, build an altar and sacrifice to me. Build an altar and sacrifice to me. And so you can see again and again, there's this pattern that's forming that when God is speaking in direct relationship to people, they built an altar and they sacrificed to God. A story of us that many of us are familiar with is Abraham and Isaac. Abraham waited till he was a hundred years old to have a son and finally his son Isaac is born. But then God tells him to sacrifice his one and only son. So he takes Isaac and goes up the mountain with his son. And as he's going up the mountain with his son, Isaac says to Abraham, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham states, God will provide a lamb. 
They get to the top of this mountain, and Abraham ties up Isaac and gets ready to kill him. And God intervenes and provides a lamb. Clearly, God was testing Abraham's obedience, but also, this is a key moment where God is pointing towards one day he will provide a lamb for the sacrifice of the sin of the world. As we move forward in the crimson thread to the Exodus, we read in Exodus 11 and 12 about an event called the Passover. And the Passover is connected with the last plague that was inflicted on the nation of Egypt. God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel to slaughter a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of their house so that when the angel of death comes through Egypt, it will pass over the firstborn in all the houses of the Israelites, but will take the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Listen to these words in Exodus 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin, then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssops across the top and sides of the doorframe of your house, and no one may go out through the door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Through the blood of a goat, God passes over all of the Israelites. Thousands of years later, on a Passover being celebrated in the city of Jerusalem, there's another sacrificial lamb. But it's the Lamb of God, the Son giving his life, shedding his blood so that death and punishment for sin would pass over us. With the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally releases the Israelites. We now enter this period in scripture called the Exodus, when over a million people exit the nation of Egypt. And it's during the Exodus where Moses is given a special or social and religious structure for the nation of Israel. And sacrifice also becomes a normative part that is commanded by God. Up until this point, people are sacrificing, but it's not necessarily in connection with a command by God. So here is some things that happen with Moses. Moses is given this command that he's to build a tabernacle, a tent where God will meet with his people. And in this tent, there's a few things. In the outer courts, there's a brazen altar where they would sacrifice burnt offerings. Then as you move into the tent, you see a couple more things. You see the holy place, which is the outer courts, where a menorah was kept burning all the time. And also there was a place for bread that was kept fresh all the time. It was called the bread of God's presence. The priests would enter into this area and tend to this area. But then there was also an inner court called the most holy place or the holy of holies. In the most holy place were a few things. There was an incense altar and also a box called the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen the old school movie Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's where this came from. But interesting details about the Ark of the Covenant, within this box is where the Ten Commandments would have been. 
Also, the budded staff of Aaron was in there and some manna, which was food that came from heaven that the Israelites were fed during their desert wanderings. The top of the box is called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And there's two cherubim or angels sitting on there looking down at the top of this box. And on the top of the atonement cover is where God would manifest his presence. So that was the one spot where God would manifest his presence to the nation of Israel. On top of the atonement cover. The word atonement actually began as two words, at one mint. And according to the Baker Bible Dictionary, atonement simply means the act by which God and man are brought together in personal relationship. So here's the Ark of the Covenant, the agreement, the covenant means agreement between God and man. And on top of that, there's this atonement cover where God would restore relationship with humanity and himself. Now, once a year, they were commanded to practice what was called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the sins of Aaron and his family, Aaron was the high priest, and the sins of the nation of Israel would be atoned for. Every year, they would do this practice. We read in Leviticus 16 about the Day of Atonement. One of the things that happened was Aaron would take a bull and a goat, and the bull was for a sin offering, and the goat was for a burnt offering, and he'd bring them. He'd sacrifice the one, and then he'd take the bull, and he'd sacrifice that bull and take blood from that bull and bring it into the most holy place. And this blood from the bull was for him and his family's sin. And so he'd dip his hand in that blood and he'd sprinkle it on the atonement cover. It's a bloody mess. So he's sitting here sprinkling blood all over the atonement cover. And this would atone for his personal sin and the sin of his family. Then he would exit back out And there was two more goats waiting for him. One of the goats would be slaughtered. He'd take that blood back into the Holy of Holies. And then he'd take it and sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover for the sins of the nation of Israel. Then he'd take the blood that was meant for his personal sin and family sin and the blood meant for the nation's sin and mix it together and then begin sprinkling everything with blood. Everything got a little bit of blood on it within the whole tabernacle. So everywhere you look, you see bits and pieces of blood and death because it was purifying that whole area and cleansing it. But we still have another goat. And this other goat, after all that bloody mess was done, the other goat will be brought forward And Aaron would put his hands on the head of the goat and pray the sin and wickedness of the sin of the nation over the head of the goat. So imagine like reflecting on the last year of your life and the last year of the nation and all the wickedness and all the sin and all the rebellion being spoken out loud. So imagine I just began to say whatever wicked things you did. You might be sitting there listening to this goat getting prayed over and be like, that was me that did that. That was something that happened in my family. That was something personal to me. So they pray all the sins over this goat. And then they take a person and they drive it out of the camp and into the wilderness never to be seen again. It's called the scapegoat. 
And every year, they would practice the Day of Atonement. Every year, the nation would gather and watch blood being poured out for their sin. They'd watch the scapegoat being driven away as the sins of the nation are prayed over it. In Leviticus 17.11, we read these words about blood. For the life of the body is in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification, atonement possible. At this point now, the nation of Israel has an established pattern for dealing with sin. And every year this process repeated again and again. As we move forward into the time of conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, the nation of Israel goes from being nomadic wanderers, they didn't really have a place to live, to entering into the land that was promised to them, to taking over Jerusalem and establishing that as the capital city. David, the second king of Israel, decides he wants to build a temple, but God doesn't allow him. So his son Solomon builds a temple to the Lord, a permanent residence for God. On the day of dedication, God's presence fills that temple. I could not even imagine being there and seeing God's presence completely envelop this temple. And then on top of this, Solomon sacrifices 22,000 cattle as a peace offering and 120,000 sheep. You can't even comprehend how much of a bloody mess happened that day in recognition of God's presence being willing to be with the people. The nation must have been in awe that day that they now had a permanent residence for God. But in this residence, something begins to happen. God had never asked for a permanent residence. He was cool living in a tent. He was fine being in a tent. The people wanted to give him a permanent residence. And soon it became about the location and not about the heart. Over time, the temple falls into disrepair. And even to such a point that is torn down and rebuilt, that the Holy of Holies is desecrated, and what was meant to be a place of worship and repentance and forgiven is destroyed. Because a relationship with God is not based off of a location, it's based off of our condition in our heart. And as people's hearts drift away from God, it's natural to allow that physical representation of what's going on in our hearts to fall into disrepair. But God is faithful. And again and again and again, he brings the nation back to himself. When the book of Isaiah begins, God speaks of this reality that there's this system of sacrifice set up, but you're doing it with the wrong heart. You show up, you offer the things, you go through the right motions, but really your heart is not in the right place. And so Isaiah confronts the nation and and says this to them in Isaiah 1.8. Basically, he says, come back. Come back to God. Come now, let's settle this. Or another translation says, come now, let's reason together. Let's think about what's going on here, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Can you see the parallel? 
That here's a nation that is used to seeing blood for forgiveness of sin. And he is saying, your, your sin is crimson red. And I'm going to make it white. I am going to purify you. But it's not going to be through the sacrifice of a lamb. As we continue to read on in Isaiah 53, a prediction is made of one who is going to come and cleanse of our our sin, but it's not going to be a physical lamb. We read in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sin of us all. Can you hear in these words of Isaiah the scapegoat? The Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. All of us like sheep have wandered away to our own paths. And here Isaiah is predicting that there's going to be a person who has all the sins laid on their head and all of our wickedness laid on them. And he's going to be crushed and pierced and whipped for our healing and restoration. You can hear the prediction of a human scapegoat scapegoat for all of our sin. As you look through the Old Testament, there's this deep, deep, deep well of necessity of blood sacrifice for forgiveness. There's also another theme that our actions have consequences. Our sin costs other people. Our sin costs animals their lives. Our sin costs in community and in relationship with others but that through blood we can be restored. The crimson thread, the bloody mess of the Old Testament has set a stage for the one who is to come, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the complete and final sacrifice for the sin of the world. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his cousin John the Baptist sees him and states these words, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The crimson thread has taken us from the garden to the fall, through a sacrificial system, to a temple, to multiple, multiple, countless sacrifices. And now it takes us to a cross where the complete and final sacrifice for the sin of the world, for the reconciliation of all of humanity will be performed. Listen to these words from the writer of Hebrews in light of what we just talked about in Hebrews 9, 22 to 26. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifice than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. 
He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priests here on the earth who enter the most holy place year after year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have to die again and again and again ever since the world began. But now once for all time, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the ages to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Incredible. Jesus, the final complete sacrifice. Jesus, our Passover lamb. Jesus, the scapegoat. Jesus, the one whose perfect blood can cleanse us forever. I know I covered a lot of scripture. And I'd encourage you, if this is something that draws you in, to go and look at some of these scripture for yourself. This is a rich, rich picture of what our sin and rebellion cost, but what Jesus was willing to give for us. He didn't hold back anything. From the garden to the cross through the resurrection, he has pursued us because he loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. And today we get the opportunity to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Today we'll celebrate communion together. And if you're newer to us, the way we practice communion here is we call it open communion. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're not living in a way that's contrary to what he asks, we invite you to participate with us. And if you were living in a way or are, confess your sin right now. The blood is enough. And come and celebrate with us. And we'll have some communion servers up front where you can take a piece of bread and dip it into a cup and then take that. And you just come down the center aisle and then go back up the outside so we don't create a traffic jam. But on the first night of communion, the first time it was ever celebrated was during the Passover. Remember the Passover where the blood was put over the door and Jesus was actually celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And during the Passover, four cups by different names would be drunk from. The first cup was the Kiddush, which means sanctification, to be set apart as holy. And with this, this cup, the Passover, the Seder meal began. The second cup is the cup of plagues, a reminder of the plagues that were poured out on the Egyptians for the freedom of the Jews. The third cup is referred to as either the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And the fourth cup is also called the Hallel, which means praise, or some people call it the cup of Elijah that is left waiting for Elijah that one day he's going to come back before the Messiah comes. And John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was Elijah coming back. But the cup that Jesus raised, according to scholars, was the third cup. The cup of redemption, the cup of blessing, the cup of restoration. And he states that tonight begins a new covenant. A new covenant, not the one 
that you had to enter into this whole process once a year and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, but a new covenant that's going to be in his blood that all of us can walk into the presence of God. That each and every one of us, by the blood of Christ and by his body being broken for us, can enter into his presence and experience complete and utter forgiveness, freedom, and restored relationship with God. And in that moment, Jesus held up that bread and said, you see this bread? This is my body. I'm not holding anything back from you. I'm going to give it all. and My body's going to be broken for you. See this cup? It is a symbol of my blood. And there's going to be no more sacrifices because this is the one final complete sacrifice that will happen the next day. As we come to communion this morning, I want you to be reminded that Christ's death is enough. That you can't add anything to that. You can't take anything away from it. His death is enough for you. His death is enough for our community, for our nation, for the world. His blood brings forgiveness for past, present, and future sin. And all we need to do is come and receive that for ourselves. If you're here this morning, maybe you've been reminded of your own sinful niche. And if you have been, come to the cross. Come to the table and recognize that there is forgiveness and freedom and wholeness. And maybe you've forgotten how incredible the sacrifice is, but it is amazing that Christ would do this for us. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it, but he willingly poured out his life for us. So if the communion service would like to come forward, and as we celebrate this cup, the Passover in a sense, the new covenant, the new agreement between God and people, may we both recognize the immensity of his sacrifice and be grateful that he has paid it all for us. Father God, we come humbly before you And we recognize that without you, we would be lost and astray with no hope, no life, no relationship with God. And Lord, we have the privilege of looking back through the Old Testament and seeing what a bloody mess it was. And we have the privilege of being able to look back and see the cross and see your death for us, that we could be restored in relationship with you. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, may we be reminded that it is enough. It is finished, and your blood has paid the full penalty for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.